Exodus chapter 3, starting at verse 7. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name you shall call me, from generation to generation. Go, assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, appeared to me and said, I have watched over you and have seen what has been done to you in Egypt. And I have promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt, into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. The elders of Israel will listen to you. Then you and the elders are to go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go. And I will make the Egyptians favorably disposed towards his people, so that when you leave, you will not go empty-handed. Every woman is to ask her neighbor and any woman living in her house for articles of silver and gold and for clothing, which you will put on your sons and daughters. And so you will plunder the Egyptians." Moses answered, What if they do not believe me or listen to me, or say the Lord did not appear to you? Then the Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. The Lord said, Throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground, and it became a snake, and he ran from it. Then the Lord said to him, Reach out your hand and take it by the tail. So Moses reached out and took hold of the snake and it turned back into a staff in his hand. This, said the Lord, is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Then the Lord said, put your hand inside your cloak. So Moses put his hand inside his cloak, 
And when he took it out, the skin was leprous. It had become as white as snow. Now put it back into your cloak, he said. So Moses put his hand back into his cloak. And when he took it out, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. Then the Lord said, if they do not believe you or pay attention to the first sign, they may believe the second. But if they do not believe these two signs or listen to you, take some water from the Nile and pour it onto the dry ground. The water you take from the river will become blood on the ground. Moses said to the Lord, pardon your servant, Lord. I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you you have spoken to your servants. I am slow of speech and tongue. The Lord said to him, Who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. But Moses said, Pardon your servant, Lord, please send someone else. Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses, and he said, What about your brother? Aaron the Levite. I know he can speak well. He is already on his way to meet you, and he will be glad to see you. You should speak to him and put words into his mouth. I will help both of you speak and will teach you what to do. He will speak to the people for you, and it will be as if he were your mouth and as if you were God to him. But take this staff in your hands so that you can perform the signs with it. Well, I won't ask for a show of hands, but I wonder how many of you are helping your kids or grandkids get ready for their school nativity. If you are a primary school teacher, this is probably one of those moments in the year where you're torn between thinking, this is brilliant and I love it to bits, and thinking, what were we thinking? <laughs> I think a, a not unrealistic picture would be uh, eight-year-old Jimmy who's been given the part of Joseph to play. It can only be one Joseph in the story. It's the, in one respect, it's one of the greatest parts that you can have, especially as a boy. Um, but here he is coming out with all of his reasons for not doing it. Miss, miss, none of the rest of the class like me. No, Jimmy, they do like you. And, and all of your friends and all of your family and all of your teachers are going to be there too. But miss, miss, I can't remember all of my lines. Jimmy, it's all right. We'll work on it together. And I'll be there on the night. So you keep looking at me, and I'll help you remember all that you've got to do. But miss, 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 I get, I get stage fright. It's okay, Jimmy. We all do. But miss, 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 I just don't want to do it. And welcome to teaching. (laughs) Now, in something of a similar way, Moses is having a similar discussion with God here in Exodus. God has revealed himself to him through this miracle of a burning bush to reveal the unique nature of God to Moses. And God has explained to Moses that now the time has come for him to rescue his people who are currently slaves in Egypt. He's remembered his covenant promises. He's heard their cries for help. He has seen all of their suffering. He knows what they're going through. And all of that rescue is great news for Moses. 
Don't misunderstand Moses. He's so keen on the idea of the rescue that he tried to do it himself on his own terms 40 years ago. And that didn't go so well. The problem for Moses is not that God is saying, let's rescue our people. What Moses is struggling with is the part that he's been called to play in that. So in verse 10 of chapter 3, God said to Moses, So now go, you, Moses, I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. And what follows, it's why I'm very thankful for Catherine reading such a long section, is Moses' list of excuses why he shouldn't go. (laughs) And there are five of them. And we're going to look at each one. And it's important that we do for two reasons. Firstly, we must not have the wrong attitude towards Moses, or indeed towards anybody in the Bible. There's amazing things that God does through his people, through Moses in particular. Let's just focus on Moses. He's going to help lead an entire nation of people out from slavery towards a promised land. It's a remarkable thing, and he grows to be this incredible man of faith. But there is a danger in all of our hearts to look back with rose-tinted spectacles and only focus on things that would Put people on a pedestal. That's why God's word so faithfully and honestly records Moses' stumblings, his failures, his doubts, so that we wouldn't put him on a pedestal, so that instead, secondly, we would always see God on his throne. Exodus is Moses' story. It is. But ultimately, Exodus is God's story. He's the one who has made all of these promises that he's now going to keep. He's the one that's going to equip Moses and Aaron and everybody else to do what is going to be done. He's the one, as we're going to see in the passage today, who bears so patiently with all of the doubting and the stumbling and the, you say something to him and it goes straight out of his head stuff. That is what Moses lives through in this experience. And all of that is what we can relate to. You pause and think this week about what it is in your life where you have read perhaps in the morning something to encourage you in your faith and then only minutes or hours later called into question the very thing that you have just read. <laughs> this is our need as well as Moses' need that we would fix our eyes on the God who is patient with us when we struggle because of his character. Not because we get things right but because of his patience and his presence. So we're going to look at all of Moses' excuses. And they begin chapter 3, verse 11 and 12, where Moses says, Who am I? That's his first objection. And in some ways, it's a fair comment and a concern to have. Because everything that is about to happen is a God-level rescue. It's not something that Moses can do. He's already tried that and failed. Moses is going to help bring, under God, more than a million powerless slaves out from under the superpower of its day and bring them to a land where, and that list of the Ittites, okay, is not one or two nations in the land they're going to. There are six nations in the land that they're going to. If this rescue is going to work, it's beyond Moses' gift to make it happen. And humanly speaking, Moses says, well, who am I? I'm not qualified for this. I'm a wanted man back in Egypt. And everything went wrong when I tried to do something about it 40 years ago. They're all understandable concerns. And what really matters is that we would see how God answers them. Because it's not how we might expect, and it's not how our culture 
would answer questions of doubts about self-confidence. You see the two things God doesn't do. God doesn't say to Moses, Moses, you're wrong. Stop being humble about yourself. You've got this. And neither does God say, I'm going to do something in you that means you're going to be able to do it all by yourself. Hey, Moses, there's a drink I've got over here in the fridge, which as soon as you drink it is going to transform you into a super-powered version of yourself. So you can do all of this on your own strength. God doesn't do either of those things. God says, verse 12, I will be with you. Moses says to the Lord, Lord, I'm not adequate. God says, no, but I am. The solution isn't to be found in Moses. It's to be found in God and in Moses' growing conviction that the more he looks to God's promises and his person, he can have confidence that God will do what he has promised he'll do. Now, if you know who God is and you know that he's with you, that changes everything. And not only should it have changed everything for Moses, but it should change everything for us too because the writer to the Hebrews writes the very same promise for us today that God made to Moses all those thousands of years ago. Hebrews 13, God has said, never will I leave you. If you're a Christian this morning, you, me, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. We couldn't ever possibly ask for anything more. So here's the question. Why is it for us, as for Moses, why is it that we continue to worry about the things that God's called us to do when he's promised this? Sometimes I think it is because we forget. Because life's busy and our heads get full of other stuff. We just forget what God says. Let's be honest. But sometimes it's because we stop thinking as Christians. And we start thinking the way the world thinks. See, the world would have us believe, especially in the Western culture we live in, that if you were to be a successful man or woman, you must be completely independent. It's be self-sufficient. It's weak to rely on somebody else just shows that you haven't got everything sorted yet. If you're properly flourishing as a human being, you are an independent, self-sufficient, don't need anybody else, man or woman. And if we go back to that way of thinking, our life is going to be riddled with Moses's who am I questions. Because that's not the way God made us. And it's not the way that we can sustain ourselves in life. But the grace the gospel, the good news of the Bible is of something so much better. God does not promise that he is going to work in your life in such a way that you're going to be okay on your own, ever. He says, I'm going to be present with you. I, the living God of heaven and earth, so that you will increasingly grow in your awareness of your dependence upon me. And in that, you will have all that you need. And what's quite remarkable about all of this is the sign that God then gives to Moses. We're used to signs as we go through the Bible. Perhaps the most recent one that we've all been reminded of this week has been the rainbow. 
And we're reminded that that is a sign God gave to Noah so that everybody on planet Earth would know every time they saw a rainbow, God has promised never again will he flood the whole Earth in judgment. We're used to signs. But have you seen what's interesting about this sign? Verse 12. What's Moses worried about? He's worried about, how can I know that you're with me now? How can I know that you're going to be the one that's sending me? And what does God say in verse 12? When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. See the disconnect. Moses is saying, I'm worried about whether I can be sure that you're with me now. And God says, in the future, when you've gone through the Exodus, you're going to bring my people back to this mountain. You think, well, how is that a comfort here and now? But sometimes, some encouragements only come after you've stepped out in faith. In Moses' case, how is this going to work? How is it going to help him to know that at some point in the future, we're going to be back on the mountain and everybody's going to be worshipping God together? Well, think about what's going to happen by the time he gets back to Horeb slash Sinai with all God's people. As far as Pharaoh's concerned, when they head out into the desert, he thinks they're going to get lost. As far as the Jewish people are concerned, they're so convinced that this plan has gone completely wrong that they start complaining and whinging to Moses. And here's Moses... At a subsequent date, once they've gone through the Exodus, they're going towards Sinai, wondering, what was all of this for? I've got Pharaoh laughing at me. I've got the people that I've rescued whinging at me. Moses is probably going to be having one of those existential moments of thinking, what was the purpose of all of this? And then he's going to lift his eyes and see the mountain where God said, I will bring you back here. It's not the direct route to Canaan. That's okay. This is where you're going to meet the God of heaven and earth. And Moses would know in the midst of all of those things that might have been difficult and discouraging that God is still with him because he's brought all of these people back to this very place. Some encouragements only come after you've stepped out in faith. Excuse number one, they get quicker. Number two, verse 13, Moses says, what shall I tell them? It's not as simple as, who are you? Because that's not the question Moses is asking. He's anticipating the question the Israelites are going to ask. And perhaps not without fair reason. Because God hasn't appeared to them since he wrestled with Jacob in Genesis 32. That's the last time we have a record of what we call a theophany, an appearance of God, so that we can see something of him who is invisible. And God hasn't revealed himself. He hasn't spoken to his people since back in Genesis 46 when he spoke to Jacob and said to Jacob, don't be afraid to go back down to Egypt because I'm going to send you there, make you into a great nation and then bring you back. That's more than 400 years ago. So we've just turned a few pages in our Bibles, but you've got to understand where the Israelites are coming from. We've not heard from God for more than four centuries And here's Moses, who fled 40 years ago, coming back saying, God sent me to rescue you. Their question's going to be, well, who's God? What's his name? Now, we might get caught up with, well, why are you bothered about a name? Because there are all these references to God reminding Moses and then the people that he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So why do they now need a name? 
In the ancient Near East, a name was a description that didn't just identify you in a crowd. It said something about who you are. Everybody who loves sport and football is getting excited about whose name is going to be the one we remember from this World Cup. Is Messi finally going to lift the trophy? Is it going to be Brazil's year? But if, if you say Messi to somebody, they don't just think, oh, I know who you're talking about. It's a reminder of all of that man's incredible gift with a football. Now, in an infinitely greater sense, what the Israelites were saying was, don't just tell me the name of the God that you have come from. Tell me about him. That's what God does. In verse 14, God says, I am who I am. That's what you just say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. And we could spend a week of Sundays digging into that name because scholars have wrestled with its meaning for centuries. It's a name full of enigma as much as it is of revelation. It's a name that leaves us unsure of the boundaries of how many things God is revealing in himself. But what we do know is what it's describing of him. He is self-existent. Take a breath. You're dependent. I'm dependent. In the bush, the fire blazed without taking anything from the wood. For the flame as a revelation of God is entirely self-sufficient. And God is unchanging. It's not that he's in the process of becoming something else. You know, most of us resent the fact in some ways that we get older because everything starts to fall apart and take longer and cause more aches and pains. But there are some good things about getting old. You get wiser. You've got some experience of how things work in the world. Hopefully you're going to be able to counsel yourself and others a little bit more helpfully. God doesn't have that learning curve. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And it's the nature of his eternal being that is part of this name as well. It's a, it's a play on the Hebrew to be verb. So we say I am, to be. In Hebrew is the root for this name. I am who or which I am. And what's being described here is less a question of tense. So in the English language, don't think, well, is the battle I am? Or if you've got a footnote, it might say I will be who I will be. Is it all a question of whether God's presently or in the future, something that he isn't at the moment. That's not the issue. The issue is the fact that God is outside of time and is ever-present and ever-acting in a way that is entirely self-sufficient. And God goes on to explain to Moses what he needs to say about God's plan for these people. You look in verses uh, 15 to 18, and God says to tell to the Israelites that he's been watching and is now going to rescue them. You get to God's instruction to Moses about what he's to say to Pharaoh and the Egyptians in verses 18 to 22. And Moses to ask for a three-day period to go and worship God in the wilderness. Which, when you think about the fact that they've been slaves for 400 years, a three-day religious festival is not too much to ask. But God calls Moses to ask Pharaoh because he knows Pharaoh's going to say no, but not only to say no, 
to say no in a way that has opened the eyes of the Jews to realize how opposed Pharaoh is to letting God's people go. And all of that is then going to set the context. Verse 20, for God to stretch out his hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go. That's an incredible act and a demonstration of God's power. But what God is going to do in the Exodus is even greater than that. Because God promises, verses 20, 21, 22, that he's going to change the hearts of the Egyptians. That just the population of people who have been complicit or have personally been slave drivers of all of these more than a million Jews. And we don't know exactly what's going to go on in their hearts. We don't know whether they're going to get to the end of all of this and think a real sense of guilt for the way that they've been a part of this slave trade. Or whether they're just desperate to get rid of the Israelites. So let's just make sure none of this ever happens again. Whatever they're thinking, the result is the Egyptians are literally going to take the clothes off their backs and the jewelry from around them and give them to the Israelites. So the Israelites are not only going to be freed from slavery, they're going to walk out rich at the expense of the Egyptians. Are you ready to go, Moses? No. Excuse number three. What if they don't believe me? Look at verse, uh, chapter one, uh, four sorry, in verse 1. What if they do not believe me or listen to me and say, the Lord did not appear to you? Now again, remember where Moses is. Forty years ago, we learnt from Acts 7, as Stephen tells us what's going on, that Moses thought when he intervened with the Israelite who was getting the beating, they would understand that he was going to come to rescue them. So here's Moses thinking, well, what happens if they don't believe me? That's part of what's going on. Part of it is just unbelief on Moses' part. Because you go back to chapter 3 and verse 18, God has just said, the elders of Israel will listen to you. What is that, like three minutes in the conversation? But what if they don't? No, they will. We're bordering on disobedience here. And yet, God's patient. Verses 2 to 9. He gives Moses three supernatural signs to prove that Moses has met the one true living God. Gives him the sign of his shepherding staff being thrown onto the floor and turning into a snake, only to turn back into a staff. He enables him, at God's command, to put his hand into his clothes so that as he removes it, it goes leprous. Now, I'm no doctor. I think that medics would now call this psoriasis or vitiligo. Uh, But in the general camp of it being a condition that affects the skin, it's referred to in our Bibles as as leprosy, uh, which can be instantly healed by him putting his hand back into his clothes. And God says, if they don't believe either of those things, and perhaps both Jews and Egyptians are in the mind here of God, he gives them the ability to turn the water into blood. It's like properly miraculous level signs. But they're not party tricks. These are not just demonstrations for Moses to impress Pharaoh. There are ways for Moses to show to Pharaoh that the God of Israel is all 
powerful. So you take the snake as an example. As far as snakes were concerned in Egyptian thinking, they represented power. If you look at some of the head coverings, kind of crowns that Egyptian pharaohs would have, there would very often be a metal clasp right on the front of the crown that was shaped like a risen cobra ready to strike. And that's because as far as the Egyptians were concerned, their gods had endowed their pharaoh, whom they considered divine, with power and magical ability that they represented with a snake. And what's God doing? Saying, I can throw a staff onto the floor, turn it into a snake, and turn it back into a staff. In God's great kindness, modern medicine has largely eradicated leprosy around our world. But in the ancient Near East, this was everywhere and created enormous, life-changing harm to the individuals and families who are affected. What's God saying? I can cause it and remove it. And even more than that, he can turn Nile water into blood. Not just any water. We're going to get to this in the first plague. But just so that we understand something of what is going on here, as far as the Egyptians were concerned, the Nile is the source of life. Like, not just it's where you go for your water because you haven't got a tap to turn on in the kitchen. In the sense that the Nile is the very source of fertility and blessing and the whole hope for this entire nation. What does God do? He's going to enable Moses, when he's back in Egypt, to take water life from the Nile and turn it into blood death. God is going to show the Egyptians that in every way they think they're powerful, God is more powerful. He is the I am who I am, which may not have convinced every single Jew and every single Egyptian, but it is is this undeniable demonstration of the power of God that is greater than every other God there may be in the world. Surely we're ready to go now, Moses. Oh no. Verse 10, chapter 4. How can I speak Pardon your servant, Lord, I've never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you've spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. We don't know exactly what Moses' speech issue was. We do know from Stephen's record of what happened in Acts 7 that Moses would become powerful in speech and action. So whatever this problem is right now, it isn't going to hinder his ability for the whole of his life. You get to the book of Deuteronomy, it's basically Moses' last will and testament. It's a phenomenally eloquent description of all of God's goodness. So whatever this issue is, it's not just, I'm never going to be able to speak clearly. The I am slow in Hebrew is literally I'm heavy. I think what is perhaps in Moses' mind is he just wasn't quick on his feet. And he knows he's going to be back in Pharaoh's court, which remember, he was raised in the royal family, so he knows what's going to happen there. And he's going to be debating Pharaoh, and he just knows, that's not my gift set. I'm not very good at PMQs. God's not having any of it. Verse 11, who gave human beings their mouths? 
Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go. I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. In a sense, God is saying, Moses, remember who you're speaking to. I'm the God who's sovereign over all things, says God. I'm the one who has an eternal plan that is being outworked here. I promised 400 plus years ago that after 400 years in slavery, I would rescue my people. I'm the one who gives every good gift to every single person. If you're an eloquent speaker, it's because God has made you so. If you struggle to speak, that's because God has given limitations to your speech so that you can magnify God and glorify him in other ways that show your dependence upon him. If you can see, it's his gift. If you can't, he is using that to grow your dependence upon him. He's sovereign over all of it. So here's God saying to Moses, here's my plan, which has been 400 years in the making. Do you really think if I'm going to ask you to play a part, I won't give you what you need? Verse 12. Now go. Stop worrying about the future. Trust me and go. At which point Moses is finally really honest. Verse 15. Can't you send someone else? Years ago, I would have looked down my theologically straight nose at Moses at this point. I think I'd have probably said something like, Moses, what more could God have possibly promised you, shown you, and guaranteed for you, and you're still not willing to go and do what he says? I'm not as arrogant anymore. What Moses says here is wrong. Don't mishear me. God has told him to do things and he has promised him to be with him and he has said that I am going to enable you to do everything that I've called him. Moses' refusal to go is sinful. He makes God angry. Don't miss that. But I'm sure I'm not the only person in the room who has, you've grown in life. There are times when you can see what the Lord is calling you to do and you have that sinking sense of feeling, Lord, please could you just send somebody else? It's hard to carry some of those responsibilities and that's why I've needed to sit under this text this week and all of us need to sit under this text this week. This isn't just the preacher's burden. This is everybody's burden. The Lord says, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. That's my family members who aren't Christians and my neighbors who aren't Christians and the people I try to see as regularly as I can given that I work for the church who aren't Christians. But it's also yours. And I know that struggle as much as you do of feeling, Lord, can't you send someone else? And here is God responding in a way that shows us that if we refuse to do what he's called us to do, when he has shown us his providence, his provision, his promises, his presence, and his perfect plan, our refusal is sinful. 
But God is gracious. And you look at what God does next. He doesn't throw Moses under the bus. He doesn't move to plan B. Even here, God chooses to be patient with this imperfect servant who is as imperfect as I am. And he says to him, verses 14 to 17, I have called you and your brother. For all of the concern that you may have, Aaron is going to come alongside you. We're going to see next week that God brings Aaron to Horeb to meet Moses. And you are going to do this together. You're going to speak the very words of God to your brother, who is then going to be the one who will speak to Pharaoh, so that you don't have to do that, but you're going to do it together. You see the grace of God? God didn't have to do any of this. He made the promise to Abraham all those years ago that at this point in history, he's going to rescue his people. He will do that. He is going to do that, but he didn't have to use some doubting, questioning, could you possibly just do anything to use anybody else kind of guy like Moses? In the very same way he is at work in the lives of your friends and your family. He's patiently bearing with all of our doubts and hesitations. And please, Lord, send someone else. That's what this passage is here to show us, the grace and the kindness of God. He chooses to do this, to give us hope. So why don't you just take 30 seconds. In your head, if you've got a notepad, jot down, when you look back over this week, a way in which you know God has been patient with you. A way in which you've been reminded of his presence with you. Or a way in which you have clung to his promise in all that is going on in your life. Just take 30 seconds to do that. A way that you've been reminded of his patience, of his presence, and of his promise. And when you've thought of that, We're halfway to seeing how this passage closes. Because it isn't only to show us the patience and the provision of God. It's to prepare the ground for us to see the greater rescuer. A greater rescuer who, unlike Moses, wasn't a reluctant redeemer. Think about all the contrasts between Moses and and Jesus here. Jesus is fully man, but he is the eternal I am who I am. That's why we focus so carefully on all of those I am statements in John's gospel. Jesus is unlike any other human being in the whole of human history, and he only taught what his father taught him to say. Remember what God has just told Moses he's going to do through Aaron? Jesus taught the crowds, John 7, my teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Told his disciples in John 14, the words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it's the Father living in me who is doing his work. Then you have that wonderful reminder that Jesus knew from all eternity past that people weren't going to listen to him. It's one of Moses' big hang-ups. Lord, if you send me back there, they're not going to listen. Didn't stop Jesus. 
It didn't stop the one who John tells us came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Mark's gospel tells us that when Jesus came to teach in the synagogue in his hometown, his own neighbors refused to listen to anything that he was saying. The leaders of his people during the course of his three years of the public ministry grew more and more opposed to Jesus so that they get to the point where they're planning to kill him. And then what happens? Right at the very end of his life, Jesus knows that the great cost of his life is about to be paid. What does he pray in the Garden of Gethsemane? Lord, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Our rescuer is not a reluctant rescuer. Jesus came knowing that he wouldn't be believed, knowing that he would only preach the word of the Father, knowing that every part of his life would be rejected by so many, and yet at the point when it would cost him everything, he said, yet not my will but yours be done, so that we, as we trust in him, can be forgiven of our sins. As you reflect on this big passage during the course of this week, I want you to do both of those things. I want you to look back and see the way that God is patient with you, the way that you are aware of his presence and of his promises, but I don't want you to stop there. It's not just a lesson only in the character of God. It's a foil. It's a counterexample to make us see that the one in whom our hope rests didn't say, please send someone else said, your will be done so that my salvation, your salvation, if you trust in him, is full. You know, the lesson that you come out of when you go all the way through this passage is not only that we would grow in our understanding of God's character, it's that we would become people of faith. People whose eyes, like Moses, are increasingly fixed more and more on who God is. So that whatever he calls us to do, our eyes wouldn't be fixed on the, pre- the present challenges and all the things that we think are going to be a hindrance. They're going to be fixed on the God who has promised, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you.